If anyone's curious and watching the video version, this stain on the side of my couch is a queso stain. Queso. I know, yeah, you were thinking of something else, but it's queso. All right. Both Jesus and Paul thought the world would soon end. Neither of them were committed to political change or institutional reform. Paul talked about throwing off the shackles of slavery, but as a metaphor for what Christianity achieves for the soul after death. Paul told his followers to accept slavery in this life. Jesus and Paul didn't preach about creating a liberal order in this world, so it's tough to give them, or Christianity, credit for creating it. They preached a message of how to enter God's kingdom that is not of this world, not how to run kingdoms here on earth. I contend that a shift did happen where the Christian implications for morals were applied to societies and states in this world, but it wasn't a straightforward directive from Paul or Christ. Creating modern liberal values and having them applied by societies and governments did not happen automatically. The implications of needing to care about and identify with all humans did not stop Christian societies from the oppression of kings and nobles over peasants, the subjection of women, intolerance, mass murder, war, worldwide slavery, or the continuation of authoritarian systems. It didn't lead Eastern, Egyptian, or Ethiopian Christianity into developing liberal norms, nor did it lead to the West applying them in great force until very recently. The ideas of Jesus and Paul were a great seed, but the growing of that seed into modern values was contingent on the political situations in Western Europe. These situations were characterized as a power and institutional dynamic where religious beliefs were represented by an entity with decent degrees of separation from the power of kings, emperors, and lords. Before Constantine started the process of officially Christianizing the empire, Christianity grew up separate from any state and had its own institutions and separate identity. When the Western Empire fell, the bishops and the structure of the church still stood. So, we had this religious institution that had the legitimacy of a former epic empire, while different barbarian tribes wielded political power. Rather than the norm, which was church and state belonging to the same institutions, we had a de facto separation of church and state. This survived throughout the medieval ages. With a church separate from states, churchmen had the incentive to conclude and emphasize more liberal ideas. Fortunately, the Bible, Paul, and Jesus had the seed of liberalism within them, and the church focused on these to justify its own power separate from that of kings. The church fought for boundaries on governmental power to limit the extent that kings could take power from the church. Historian Tom Holland has said that we probably wouldn't have the secular separated from religion if not for the sack of Rome. Theologian Augustine was key in coming up with ideas that led to modern secularism. In the wake of the sack, many people blamed Christianity for the fall of Rome, 
saying we should have stuck with the old gods. Augustine said no. Rome is not an eternal city. All things are mortal. Everything on earth will go. Don't worry about Rome or the collapse of the empire. Only the religious bond that joins the church to heaven can redeem us. Augustine was enshrining that there is this dimension of the pointless flow of time that included things like rising and falling empires, and then there is a dimension of religion. The Frankish Carolingian Empire, founded by Charlemagne, lasted from 800 to 888, and at its greatest extent contained most of modern-day France and Germany, some of Spain, much of Italy, and more. Pivotal to the spread of Christianity, Charlemagne embraced its spread and tried to institute its belief throughout his empire. He was crowned by the Pope in 800, signifying that the Pope has the power to crown emperors. Some historians think Charlemagne would not have gone to his coronation if he had known the Pope planned to coronate him. Charlemagne used his papal coronation to declare himself renewing the Roman Empire as the Holy Roman Empire. The Pope crowned Charlemagne to imply papal authority over the empire. It set the precedent of popes crowning rulers. In the early Middle Ages, rulers were appointing people to church offices. In the 1000s, the church tried to take this power back. Secular rulers doing this was always supposed to be heresy, but the church failed to enforce its power. Pope Gregory VII, elected pope in 1073, claimed to be God's vice-regent on earth with authority over secular rulers. He claimed the right to depose emperors and kings, to release subjects from oaths of obedience, and to try all serious disputes between rulers. Feudal power was held by oaths. If a pope can free lords of oaths, he can take away a monarch's power. Who gets to appoint bishops was a major clash between secular rulers and the papacy. Appointing a bishop was called an investiture. Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV went against Pope Gregory on investitures. Gregory excommunicated him and released Henry's vassals from their oaths causing many of them to defy and distance themselves from Henry. In 1077, Henry went to the Italian monastery of Canossa to beg Gregory for forgiveness. Supposedly, Henry had to wait three days in the cold, then walk barefoot through snow and kneel before the Pope before begging for forgiveness. The Pope forgave him. In this important event, the Pope confirmed and won his power to control his own church. By the early 1100s, rulers and popes made compromises whereby popes and rulers were both involved in appointing bishops. The king would confirm the bishop in his secular possessions and the pope in his spiritual role. Kings accepted being crowned by popes because it gave their rule legitimacy. Additionally, some may have had a legitimate fear of hell. The belief-based power of excommunication was that excommunicated souls could not enter heaven. The Pope can also declare that those continuing to support an excommunicated leader are likewise excommunicated. Furthermore, the claim to speak for God gave the Pope an authority that some rulers and subjects respected. Popes had the power to declare interdict. When King John of England married twice without dispensations, 
and then also installed an archbishop, Pope Innocent III declared all of England to be under interdict. All 8,000 churches in England shut and locked their doors. No mass or marriage, no ringing bells, no sermons, no communion, no funeral services. The Pope suggested that England was basically now pagan and would be an acceptable target for a crusade. King John gave in. In 1213, he agreed to peace, to restoration of the church's privilege and property, and that England was a vassal of the papacy and English rulers would rent England from Rome for 1,000 marks a year. Like Henry IV, John of England was humiliated and defeated by the church. Popes, however, were not all-powerful. Rulers with sufficient money, military, or Sashan allies could put pressure on the Pope to achieve their interests. Because the Church successfully defended its independence, its theologians had the freedom and incentives to continue developing ideas that limited governmental power. With a state-controlled Church, the Church may pay lip service to ideas like conscience, the equality of all souls, the worth of every human, and the liberty that these ideas imply. But when push comes to shove, and the state wants to interfere, the state-controlled church will find reasons to justify state action and will focus its theological minds on shoring up those justifications in the dogma. With a church that for historical reasons is separate, the church has the incentive to develop theology to defend its own freedom from the state. And theologians have the freedom to nurture the seeds of individual liberty. Since 1550, three arguments for religious liberty gradually spread. One was skepticism. Skepticism of all the dogma dividing Christianity. Some of this was indifference or hostility toward all religions. A second was expediency. Some religions became too entrenched to suppress without a costly civil war. So, they were tolerated not because of a moral belief in toleration, but because suppression would be too costly. This is contingency. The balance of power made it so no one religion or sect could rule them all. So people more focused on ideas that imply freedom of choice in religion. The inconclusive European religious wars of the 1500s and 1600s helped the region develop secularism. At the end of the Thirty Years' War, the powers of Europe agreed in the Treaty of Westphalia that they would not force their own religion on their subjects. The history of this war and its political, military, and power outcomes resulted in greater church-state separation. Rather than the greater separation resulting from something inherent in Christianity, it was caused by a bloody war and a political treaty. Toleration of religious differences was enshrined as part of the Christian order and Christian virtue, but they were enshrined because of circumstances. In England, Cromwell was victorious to a degree that no general on the continent was. He thought he had God's backing because of it, so he felt no call to similarly tolerate Catholic rebels in Ireland. Cromwell was tolerant in other ways, though. He thought other sects' beliefs were wrong, would burn their books, and end their rituals, but wouldn't burn the men. He would accept papists as guests at his table. He allowed the Catholic colony of Maryland to not lose its rights. Still, 
Due to Cromwell's unbalanced power, he was able to persecute in ways that others decided was too costly. The third argument for religious liberty was a heartfelt appeal to principles in Christianity. Over time, the idea that rulers can't interfere with the church expanded to not being able to interfere with anyone's religious beliefs. People recognized that a powerful persecutor could make a mistake. They accepted that progress and understanding the divine required reasonable discourse, freedom of thought, and freedom of expression. Such ideas helped turn freedom of the church into freedom for individuals. If the church alone had freedom, then people may be persecuted in error, and a contest of ideas would be squelched rather than allowed to fuel a better understanding of God and His will. Before, dissenters were thought to be motivated by evil. This changed to accepting that a difference of opinion could be due to an intellectual error. If God won't compel a person to go against his conscience, why should we? Freedom of conscience came to be seen as a natural right. International human rights were not widely supported by Christians until at least the 1940s. The events of the 1930s and 40s led Christians to support such rights. The extreme totalitarianism of Hitler and Stalin was a major threat to the church and Christianity and made clear the need to put limits on the power of the state. Also, the war put suffering upon many Christians, adding to the argument for human rights. It was overtly clear that the state could have too much power and use it to do great damage. Again, this was circumstances pushing Christianity in a more liberal direction. Eastern Christianity had a doctrine of equality of souls. But individuals were subordinated to the emperor, and a strong church-state separation did not develop, nor did individual liberty. In Eastern Christianity and Islam, the religious institutions were submerged within the political structures. Liberalism only developed where the religious was not controlled by the political. Where we see submergence we see a monoculture and groupthink. We see a privileged priestly class that is bounded with the ruling institutions. And in these scenarios, we see this joined ruling class discourage liberalism. Both Byzantine and Muscovite Christianity remained united with their respective states, and neither country flourished economically or developed modern liberal values. Christianity gave a base of ideas about equality and human dignity. This base implies rights, but for these rights to come to fruition, we also need a political atmosphere that applies these ideas. Once people are given rights, they have the ability and incentive to work and gain fruits from what they earn. When priests are part of the ruling order, it makes it difficult for these ideas to come to the top and be applied and accepted by governments. The Enlightenment developed in Western Europe endogenously, to the extent that it impacted other areas, including other Christian cultures. It did so with an exogenous impact. Other areas took parts of the Enlightenment and interacted it with their own cultures, rather than having a homegrown Enlightenment develop. Factors that hindered Enlightenment influence in the Greek Orthodox world were 
a strong church establishment that prevented dissent and deviation due to viewing Enlightenment ideas as a threat, the coupling of the Orthodox establishment with a traditionalist Greek society that was less open to new Enlightenment ideas, an Ottoman Empire that also saw Enlightenment ideas as dangerous due to their revolutionary tendencies and their proclivity to challenge traditional order, the historical East-West divide made Easterners suspicious of Western ideas that were seen as fallen in religious and non-religious domains. And the Orthodox East didn't have the long sequence of developments that happened over time in the West that gave the West an intellectual and cultural foundation that facilitated support for Enlightenment ideas. It's not simply differences between Eastern and Western churches but differences in socio-political, cultural, and religious historical trajectories and developments. Eventually, Enlightenment ideas did affect the East. They helped overthrow the Greek Christian self-perception as faithful Christian subjects, replacing it with a view of national citizenship, nationalism, freedom, and civil rights. These changes in views helped lead to the creation of an independent Greek state. Eastern Christianity serves as a prime example because the seed of Western and Eastern Christianity was the same. They both had Jesus. They both had Paul. But in the West, the Roman Empire fell and the political dynamic resulted in a church standing separate from secular rulers, while in the East, church and state remained joined. So, the West developed modern Western values and the East did not. It's not just that Christianity didn't facilitate liberal values anywhere but the West, but other religions can also be read to have similar seeds that also did not take root. In Islam, human dignity comes from us being God's creation and from us being adored by and loved by God. Although Islam doesn't focus on the image of God argument, both religions have God impart dignity in the creation of humans. The Quran explicitly claims human dignity with the line, We have bestowed dignity on the children of Adam and conferred upon them special favors above the great part of our creation. It also speaks of humans being spiritually ranked above other creatures. God created Adam with his own hand. He breathed into Adam of God's own spirit. God says he created humankind in the best of forms and the best of images. It can be argued that the Quran shows God's great love for mankind, and dignity is implied from that. There are a variety of Quran and Hadith quotes that can be argued to imply that all humans, Muslim and non-Muslims, have human dignity. It has been argued that all humans share inherent human dignity because of their ability to contemplate, freedom, free will, and divine image. The commonality of human beings, our humanity, is an emphasis in Islam. Muslim scholars have said that all members of the human race have dignity, and that it is a natural, absolute right that every person has at birth. They've also argued that something like human rights can be found in the Quran. The Islamic Conference Organization's 1990 Cario Declaration on Human Rights in Islam has legal provisions about the protection of life and respect for human dignity. The Prophet Muhammad supported human equality under God. The West focuses more on rights, while Islam more on spirituality and duties. 
However, some Islamic scholars believe the Quran implies a greater focus on rights than actually practiced. They believe in a balance between rights and duties. There's a debate in Islam whether respect and dignity should only apply to believers. Some argue that there is universal dignity, but there is also an acquired dignity gained through piety, sincere belief, and adherence to good deeds. The Quran also has lines supporting freedom of religion, saying that there shall be no compulsion in religion, and that let whosoever wills believe, and whosoever wills disbelieve, and anyone who accepts guidance does so for his own good, but one who wantonly goes astray, then tell him that I am only a warner. It also says, to you your religion, and to me mine. Several other Quran quotes can be argued to imply rights or freedom of religion. Islam did not have a word for conscience, but they had the concept. In Islam, individuals can't determine moral truths by themselves, but they do have the ability to understand and act on moral truths. Quotes from the Hadiths may not label what they are describing with a term, but they are clearly describing internal conscience at least in the form of guilt or unease at doing or thinking of doing a wrong action. Moral authority still lies in Sharia, but the soul plays a role in moral reasoning. Like in Christianity, Muslims can challenge scholarly authorities who may have made a mistake, but cannot overrule God. Conscience is not unique to Christianity, and is instead a basic human function. However, the emphasis placed on conscience by Christianity may make a difference and how it affects world events and the development of morals. The greater focus on conscience in the West may have helped it be a mechanism for liberties, secularism, and challenging authority. An important and early Islamic philosopher, Averroes, argued for science and philosophy to be separate from official theology. Many modern Muslim thinkers say that religion and politics can be separated. There are some in Islam who argue for a version of secularism whereby the state doesn't require a particular interpretation of Sharia, and that constitutionalism and human rights are consistent with Islam. <laughs> if Islam can be reasonably read to have many of the same seeds as Christianity, then why did it not bear fruit like Christianity did? In Western Europe. The emphasis on such values in Christianity could have been a factor, but another was the different political environment. Between the 700s and 1000s, the Muslim world had a level of separation between religious and political authorities. During this time, Islamic scholars valued financial independence from the state and considered entanglement with it as corrupting. They were funded instead by commerce. Many were members or leaders of wealthy merchant families. The scholars were independent of rulers and did not serve the state. They purposely kept themselves separate and could use Islam and popular will to check the state. Thus, an alliance between religious scholars and rulers was not a fundamental part of Islam. That part of Islam developed later. The split power tended to moderate religious and state law. Authoritarian leanings were checked by the possibility of criticism by religious scholars. These scholars focused on the rule of law, limits on power, and maintaining rights to life, property, family life, and education. Likewise, 
overly extreme Islamic interpretations that may threaten practical policies and order were constrained by the possibility of state crackdowns. During the period of separation, the Islamic world produced innovative scholars in religious and non-religious areas. At this time, Western Europe was still controlled by the combination of Catholic clergy and military aristocracy. Western Europe didn't have influential intellectuals and merchants like Islam did. While the Islamic world still had religious persecution, there was enough freedom for a level of religious diversity and toleration. And scholars who the state tried to persecute had enough of an independent base to resist. Islamic empires had an uncommon tolerance. Jews persecuted in Europe fled to Islamic lands. Sharia was a set of laws separate from rulers. These laws were above the rulers. The rule of God was interpreted by scholars who were usually independent. This is why classical medieval Islamic civilization was not totalitarian because secular power was mitigated by Sharia. Classical Islam had rulers in independent Islamic scholars, like a separation of power. Over time, the rulers co-opted the scholars and this led to totalitarianism. This killed the diversity and dynamism of Islamic thought and weakened Islamic civilization. In the 1000s, an alliance between religious scholars and the state emerged. Those that argue for a union of mosque and state focus on Islam during this time, rather than the earlier period when Islam had more separation. The Seljuk Empire around 1050 centralized the economy and Islamic education. From this point forward, the Muslim world tended to have an alliance between religious scholars and military rulers as other Islamic empires copied the Seljuk ways. Muslim philosophers with unorthodox views were declared apostates. The Islamic religious state alliance that centralized religion and economics limited the development of more liberal ideas as well as economic growth. With the decline of the merchant class, scholars had to rely on the state for funding. Around the same time, Western Europe went in the opposite direction. The Catholic Church and different kings vied for domination. Because no side won out, the separation of church and state was institutionalized. This eventually facilitated philosophical and religious diversity. So, we had a great reversal whereby the Islamic world was once superior to Western Europe in science, literature, and wealth. Islam had a great library with hundreds of thousands of books, while Western European libraries had less than 600. Muslims produced paper more than 500 years before Western Europeans did. Islam contained great cities, while Western Europe's largest cities were dwarfs in comparison. After the Islamic religious class was joined with the ruler class, they made crucial decisions. The Middle East adopted gunpowder, seeing the military usefulness of it. But they rejected the printing press. The religious authorities didn't want to lose their monopolies over intellectual output and religious interpretation. Ottoman rulers banned the press because their legitimacy was wrapped in their alliance with the religious leaders, and undermining the religious establishment would also weaken their ability to rule. The Islamic Empire got the printing press 300 years after Europe. In 1800, Western Europe had a 31% literacy rate, while the Ottoman Empire had a 1% literacy rate. During the Middle Ages, the proportion of books on science in the Islamic world declined dramatically, largely due to a focus on religious works. 
the largest reversal was in the 1000s and 1100s during the spread of madrasas. Religious leaders had political power and there were greater benefits to producing religious works than scientific works. There may have been a bottom-up process where fewer great minds went into science due to the incentives. It is very difficult for Muslims to challenge the religious state alliance because the allied authorities have declared their alliance as an essential part of Islam. Islam doesn't essentially require such an alliance, but a dominant interpretation of Islam does. With the modern state, Islamists want to take it and use it to force their beliefs on others, combining the modern state with Sharia. When religion is outside the state, it can check the power of the state. But if combined with the state, it has a totalitarian impulse. If Christianity is essentially more prone to a church-state separation than Islam, then why did Islam have greater separation for hundreds of years? And why did Christian separation only develop in one area where Christianity held sway? Because in both the case of Islam and Christianity, the extent that a society had secular freedom and the extent that religious scholars supported such freedom depended on either the current balance of power between church and state or the institutionalized balance of power determined by historical power dynamics. If the state controlled religious authorities or if religious and state authorities were joined in alliance, the seed of liberal values in these regions could not take root. An alliance between religious authorities and state authorities is the historical norm, the condition of Islamic empires for three to four centuries was special and unique, as was the development of secularism in Western Europe. It was this unique separation, combined with certain basics available in both Islam and Christianity, that allowed liberal values to eventually develop. Another important difference is that the Islamic world didn't have the great religious wars that helped advance secularism in Europe. Instead, they had wars and rivalries with religious coloration, but not full-blown religious wars. They persecuted some apostates, but didn't have the intense anti-heresy campaigns of Europe. With non-Western Christianity and Islam, we see similar seeds that could have produced modern liberal values, but they did not because the historical dynamics of the West produced separate institutions for religion and secular power, while both Eastern Christianity and Islam failed to create or maintain such a separation. Many other cultures had similar seeds that could have developed into modern liberal values. The golden rule was common across several cultures. For example, Thales of Miletus said, Avoid doing what you would blame others for doing. The Babylonian Talmud said, What is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. This is the whole Torah. The rest is the explanation. A Padma Purana quote is, if the entire Dharma can be said in a few words, then it is that which is unfavorable to us. Do not do that to others. And Zhigong asked in the analytics, Is there any one word that could guide a person throughout life? The master replied, How about reciprocity? Never impose on others what you would not choose for yourself.
There are plenty more examples across several cultures. Going beyond the golden rule, ethics diverge and there are philosophical quandaries. Buddhists give importance to freedom because nobility of conduct requires freedom to be achieved. Confucius believed that to serve a prince, you should tell him the truth, even if it offends him. He said to speak and act boldly when the good way prevails in the state, but to act boldly and speak softly when the state has lost the way. Confucius was no democrat or champion of freedom, but his authoritarianism is exaggerated by advocates of Asian values in modern authoritarian states. India has more atheistic and materialistic writings than any other ancient civilization, and a huge variety of literature. This tradition of argument and discussion goes against the perception of Asian values. Indian Emperor Ashoka, 3rd century BC, converted to Buddhism and spread a message of tolerating other sects. Kautilya, a 4th century BC Indian senior minister and writer, advocated for the freedom of the upper classes. According to him, denying them liberty was unacceptable. However, his treatment of lower classes was paternalistic, and government duties were only to help them avoid deprivation and misery. At the least, the ethical system he wrote of valued freedom for the upper classes, similar to Greek philosophers. Indian philosophy and art has contained a variety of views, including those arguing for tolerance and freedom. Mughal Emperor Akbar, reigning from 1556 to 1605, allowed freedom of religion in such a way more extensive than that given by some European rulers at the time. He even issued an enactment saying changing religion is acceptable. He was doing this while the Inquisition was going strong in Europe. However, this liberal-like tolerance didn't extend to other areas. Scattered through Indian history is leaders doing and thinking about tolerance and freedom. Such illustrations can also be found in the writings of Arab, Chinese, and other cultures. Nowhere in the world did people advocate modern democracy and political freedom before the Enlightenment. However, like in Western Europe, other regions had thinkers and leaders advocating for freedom and tolerance, underlying notions that became modern Western values. Current notions of liberty and rights are fairly new, not traditional Western ethics. The antecedents to those exist and are important, but they exist in Asian cultures too. There is no grand dichotomy between Asian and Western cultures. Philosophies don't have to use words translated as dignity or rights to imply such things. The focus on humaneness by ancient Chinese sages Confucius and Mencius implies human rights. Confucius talked about being benevolent, altruistic, and humane. He said to not impose upon others what you yourself do not desire. He had a message of love the people. He seemed to recognize something like the equality of all when he said, Men are close to one another by nature. They diverge as a result of repeated practice. Mencius was a Confucian disciple. He said that nature endowed every man with moral potential and a heart sensitive to the suffering of others. They both have several quotes saying that acting right is more important than gaining wealth and power and that it's better to die than act wrong. Confucian human dignity seems based on an assumption that humans are moral agents. There is a universal awareness of moral potential and the need to act upon it. Like most non-Western ethics, 
African morality is focused on duties rather than rights. It is founded on humanism, that human interest and welfare are what matter. It focuses on the social and the community, which puts humans in a web of obligations, commitments, and duties to be done for the common good or general welfare. The individual must fulfill his duties. Each person's character is an emphasis in African ethics. Duties must be fulfilled not due to the rights of others, but due to their needs and welfare. The value of the human being seems implied in this system, just like other duty-based systems. If we have an obligation to fulfill others' needs and welfare, isn't this the same as saying they have a right to these needs and welfare? Is the difference just in how we think about it? I'm doing this because it's my duty, rather than I'm doing this because it's their right. My point here is that it's possible that the all-important Christian seed was not so unique or special, and therefore any of these value systems being put in the same situation could have produced modern Western values. Nineteen hundreds Western Europe, where over the course of the century liberal values were put most fully into practice, was different than other regions and eras on a multitude of factors that could have facilitated liberal values. A few examples are below. Unlike many parts of the world, most importantly China and the Middle East, that tended to be ruled by large empires, Europe was fractionalized, which forced competition and allowed more room for different ideologies. Not only could an idea repressed in one country survive in another, but the cutthroat interstate competition helped weed out ideas not conducive to survival or power. That Europe has been fractionalized may facilitate church-state separation in that it's harder for a state to take control of religious authority when multiple states share allegiance to the same religious authority. That Europe had many states is not likely the sole explanation, because places like India also traditionally had multiple states, yet did not develop liberal values to the same extent as Western Europe did. Changes in technology can change morals and social norms. Western Europe's technological and economic dynamics changed tremendously before modern Western values took over and were put fully into practice. The West's leap forward made it unique, and it can't be ruled out that these changes mattered more for liberal values than Christianity. Western Europe also jumped ahead in wealth and GDP per capita. A society with advanced wealth has the luxury of moving toward nicer morals. Maybe many societies that made this economic leap would then find in their culture a justification to move toward morals that value every human being and limit state power. It's easier to do such things when there is plenty of wealth to go around and people aren't worried about immediate starvation. <laughs> so, what the hell did I just say? If you read up on Roman morality, the Romans were a bunch of assholes. That said, don't believe the simplistic bullshit that Christianity single-handedly came and turned us into liberal Democrats who valued human rights, liberty, the separation of church and state, 
and the well-being of each individual. However, Christianity did bring a variety of ideas that helped move us away from Greek and Roman ethics toward something else. The key point I want to make is that this Christian-facilitated change was contingent on the historical, institutional, and power dynamics of Western Europe. Christianity in other places did not achieve modern liberal values. Other religions can be argued to have similar core ideas, and they also failed to achieve such values. It took special circumstances for the Christian magic to work. <coughs> Christianity developed outside of the state, and although it joined in alliance with the Roman Empire, starting with Constantine, once that empire fell, we had this respected religion with formal leaders and positions, while at the same time, barbarian lords wielded political power. Because this separation maintained in the Middle Ages, and the Protestant Reformation made it so no one religion or sect had full control of the region, this allowed core Christian ideas to flourish and expand into ideologies supporting individual rights, human dignity, a separation of church and state, limited government, and individual liberty. Historically, this was messy and not a straight line. It took many hundreds of years, but Christian ideas were causal mechanisms in combination with other factors that resulted in where we are today. The key interacting factor was a de facto separation of church and state that resulted from historical dynamics and gave religious leaders and thinkers the incentives and freedom to develop ideas that justified the church's power and its continued independence from secular rulers. This isn't to say that the Enlightenment wasn't important. The Enlightenment was key. But Enlightenment thinkers built upon ideas developed in the church and based on Christian moral assumptions. This isn't to say that Christianity didn't also facilitate, support, or turn a blind eye to many horrible actions. But the measures by which we judge these behaviors are grounded in Christian moral ideas. So, are we a Christian society? Even if we all became atheists, but still maintained our current ethical values, are we in some sense a Christian society? Kinda, but not really. We're a Western society. We're a liberal democratic society. We're a rights-based society. Christianity was a key influencer on who we are today, and we should recognize that. But Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Our kingdoms took key Christian ideas and developed them into values that make us unique in history, that make other moral systems seem monstrous, and that give us something to fight for and defend. I'm Lone Candle. Like me, comment me, and love me. Mwah.